Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hello, 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 and welcome to the podcast. Great to have you joining us. Back in 1967, the Beatles came out with one of their many hit songs, All You Need Is Love. One of the books in my library is a heavy encyclopedic type book about the music of the Beatles called All the Songs. It gives you the story behind each one of the Beatles recordings. In 1967 then, the Beatles were chosen by the BBC to represent Great Britain in a televised five continent musical event called Our World. It was watched by 400 million viewers. The Beatles wanted to write a new song with a universal message for that event, and the result was, all you need is love. John Lennon summed it up like this, and he said, I quote, I think if you get down to the basics, whatever the problem is, it usually has to do with love. So I think all you need is love is a true statement. George Harrison described the song as a subtle bit of PR for God. The message of that song was that there isn't anything you can't do and all you need is love. But then less than three years later, the Beatles broke up over personal, musical, and business conflicts. So much for all you need is love. Some 20 years later, the rock band Foreigner was singing, I want to know what love is. About 10 years after that, Tina Turner sang the song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Well, according to the Apostle John, the answer is everything. As one of my friends said to her husband, I love you more than coffee, but please don't make me prove it. (laughs) Well, let's read some verses together now. We're going to pick up in verse 11 of 1 John chapter 3 in our series called Authentic Christianity. And picking up in verse 11, we read, John says, This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, that is, do not be surprised, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. As you've probably been noticing in this series, John likes to use contrasts in his teachings to help, well, emphasize his most important points. Back in chapter 1, for example, he used the contrast of light and darkness. In chapter 2, it was the contrasts of truth and lies along with obedience and disobedience. In our last podcast message, it was the children of God in contrast to the children of the devil. Here now, John is contrasting love and hate. In verse 11, he gives us the main subject for this passage, that we should love one another. Let me just say it right up front. You can't truly love God without loving one another. Loving each other is not just a good idea. It's a divine command from God. So the title of the message today is Love and Hate. It was D.L. Moody who rightly said, Someone may be a good doctor without loving their patients, a good lawyer without loving their clients, 
or a good teacher without loving their students, but they cannot be a good Christian without love. In verse 11, John points out that this message of loving one another has been from the very beginning, the beginning of Christ's ministry and the beginning of their conversion. When Jesus was brought face to face with the woman caught in the act of adultery, he loved her. In fact, it was his love and mercy that led her to repentance. When that rich young ruler came asking Jesus about eternal life, he loved him in spite of that man's unwillingness to fully surrender. And in the upper room, Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, knowing full well that Judas was going to betray him. Hey, I got to be honest, if it had been me, I would have put Judas's head into that basin of water and not his feet. But from the very beginning, love has been the central theme and thread of Christianity and the gospel. And from the beginning of this conversion that these believers experienced, they've been exhorted to love one another. Now, suddenly, dramatically, unexpectedly, John takes us back to a very dark day in the early history of mankind, the day that Cain killed Abel. And we might wonder, why in the world would John do that, going from a discussion about loving one another to now a discussion about a man murdering his own brother? Well, again, John is using contrast, and so he takes us to the most negative example of someone not loving another person, a brother killing their own brother. The opposite of love is hatred, and the worst expression of hatred is murder. In verse 12, John identifies Cain as someone who belonged to the wicked one, meaning that he was a child of the devil. Spiritual DNA tests reveal that Cain was not a child of God. I appreciate that John, while loving, was also blunt, and he doesn't care about being politically correct. He doesn't describe Cain as a misunderstood and troubled soul, but rather he identifies him as belonging to the devil. Now, if you're taking notes, the first contrast in this message from John is a heart of hatred. John takes us far back in time, all the way back to Genesis 4 and to the first family. God created Adam and Eve, and their first two sons were Cain and Abel. Both Cain and Abel grew up in the same home and with the same examples, but they were polar opposites spiritually. Abel was a child of God by faith, as Hebrews 11.4 indicates. In contrast to that, Cain was a child of the wicked one by choice. According to Genesis 4, Cain was a farmer. He's growing crops in his field while Abel was a shepherd tending his flocks. At some point, both boys brought an offering to the Lord and noticed that Cain was not some, well, avowed atheist. He was a worshiper in what today would maybe be like a churchgoer, but he wasn't saved, not even close. Abel then brought the firstborn of his flock while Cain brought an offering from his field. Abel brought a lamb while Cain brought, I don't know what, a head of lettuce? The Lord accepted Abel's offering of a lamb, but rejected the produce offering of Cain. The text doesn't specifically state why God had a different reaction to the two offerings, but as some have explained, that Abel's offering was presented in faith and Cain's was not. And that's definitely a part of it. That's what we read in Hebrews 11. But it also seems clear that God had given precise instructions about the correct type of offering that was required that it needed to be a blood sacrifice. That's not only consistent with the rest of Scripture from Genesis 4 and moving forward, 
but also prior to Genesis 4. And I say that because when Adam and Eve had sinned, God restored them to fellowship by covering them with the skins of slain animals. So the shedding of blood was required from the very beginning in dealing with sin. Also in Hebrews 12, the writer talks about the requirement of a blood sacrifice to atone for sins, and then he makes a connection to the sacrifice of Abel. With that in mind, Abel brought the proper type of offering, a slain lamb, while Cain brought some produce or grain from his field. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but rejected Cain's offering. Cain's reaction to this further revealed the sin that was in his heart. He became very angry. That same type of thing happens today. You know, God doesn't conform to the preconceived ideas and expectations of unsaved people, and what? They become angry. Not only was Cain angry with God, he was jealous of his brother since Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Kind of reminds us of the elder brother in Luke 15. He was angry with his father and upset with his brother, that prodigal son who had come home with the offering of repentance. And like the father in that parable, God reached out to Cain and appealed to him in his anger. God explained to him that if he obeyed and did the right thing, that he would also be accepted. But if not, sin was crouching at his door, ready to pounce. The Hebrew wording gives us the picture of a lion ready to pounce on its prey. But in spite of God's kind patience and his warnings, Cain yielded to his anger, which then escalated into murder. The outward act of murder begins with an inward hatred in the heart. Genesis 4.8 describes the scene of the crime. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. It almost reads like a scene from those Godfather movies. You know, a family member takes another family member out to a field or in a boat out on a lake and then kills them. Twice in that single verse, it reads, Abel, his brother, to emphasize how wicked this act was. Cain murdering not only his own brother, his only brother. Really sad to think that the first person to die in Scripture was killed by his own brother. If you're a fan of murder mystery shows, then you know that in most cases, the program takes us along on the investigation, and we try to figure out who did it by the end of the program. Well, then several years ago, the show Columbo came along and sort of broke the mold. In that series, the killer and their crimes were revealed up front, and then we in turn watched Columbo sort through the clues to figure out who did it. Here now, Cain is revealed as the murderer of Abel right up front. We don't have to guess if it was Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the library. We know that it was the brother Cain in the field. The only thing we don't know is what the murder weapon was, but my guess is that it was probably a chiseled knife or a sharp tool from his field. And I say that because the Hebrew word that is used there in Genesis 4 for Cain killing Abel literally means to butcher and to slit the throat. The Latin equivalent translates as jugular, so Cain went for the jugular in murdering his brother. Therefore, the very first recorded death in the Bible was a gruesome and heartless one. This story also points out that they were walking in the field when Cain murdered his brother, and it makes us wonder if they were in Cain's farm field. Did Cain actually take his brother to the same field where he had selected an unacceptable offering and then killed his brother there out of jealousy? 
Hey, God, Cain might have yelled out, you wanted blood? Here's some blood. You want a sacrifice? Here's a sacrifice. Cold, callous, and without love. Even as God asked Cain about his brother, he showed all the indifference of a ruthless killer with no conscience. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain may not have been his brother's keeper, but he was definitely his brother's killer, and God knew it. So God cursed Cain for the rest of his life. God had already cursed the ground for the sins of Cain's parents, and now he curses Cain, the farmer of that ground, for his sins. So then, out of all the illustrations that John could have used here, why did he choose that one, Cain killing Abel? The answer is back here in verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Why did Cain hate his brother so much when Abel hadn't done anything wrong? In fact, Abel is described as being righteous. Well, as the last part of verse 12 states, it was because Cain's works were evil and Abel's works were righteous. So why does the unsaved world hate you as a Christian believer? Because its works are evil and your works are righteous. John's point here is that the world hates you for the same reason that Cain hated his brother. You're trying to live a righteous life and you're seeking to honor God. And when you do that, it exposes their darkness just as Abel's righteous sacrifice exposed Cain's dark heart. Very recently, some gunmen broke into a church service in Nigeria and killed at least 50 people, including some children. The Nigerian authorities have no explanation as to why a band of gunmen would do that, but like Cain, their works were evil, and they are clearly of the evil one. In response to such evil, John then says in verse 13, do not marvel, and it's the same word used to describe Pilate's reaction when Joseph of Arimathea came requesting permission to take the body of Jesus away for burial. The text says that Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead. John says to us, do not marvel or don't be surprised when the world hates you. Parents should not be surprised when children rebel. Baseball batters should not be surprised when they get hit with a pitch. And soldiers in wartime should not be surprised when they get shot at. In the same way, we should not be surprised as Christians when the world hates us and persecutes us and wants to kill us. Remember, they hated Jesus and they hate us as his followers. And remember this, the crowd chose Barabbas not because they loved him, but because they hated the truth. Okay, then, point taken, but where's John going with all of this? Listen, please, as children of God, we're called to love one another in contrast to the hatred that is in the world. And how do we even know that we're genuine believers? By the love we have for one another. That's what John says in verse 14, we've gone from death eternal death to life, eternal life, and from hatred to love. And in verse 15, having talked about Cain hating his brother Abel and murdering him, he says that whoever has hatred for his brother is a murderer. In other words, the person who lives with ongoing hatred in his heart is a lost sinner. Hatred is completely incompatible with a genuine believer's converted heart. Now coming to verse 16, John writes this, by this we know love because we, he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in action and in truth. 
And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. Here now, John's second contrast is a heart of indifference. We move from a heart of hatred to a heart of indifference, but in some ways they're similar. John tells us what the true standard of Christian love looks like. It looks like Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for us, and he is the supreme example of Christian love, self-sacrificing and serving others. We should also lay down our lives for the brethren and, well, for the cistern. As Warren Wiersbe writes, every Christian knows John 3.16, but how many of us pay attention to 1 John 3.16, that we're to love in deed and in truth? John speaks of us laying down our lives for the brethren, and in this context, he isn't talking about dying as martyrs for the faith. He's asking us to love our fellow believers by helping them in times of need. The spiritual trap that Christians have to guard against is talking about the right things without actually doing them. For example, some Christians will talk about the gospel and evangelism, but they rarely ever share their faith. Or they'll talk about prayer, but there isn't much prayer time in their lives. In the same way, we can talk about loving other believers, but not actually help a brother or sister in need. John gives us a three-step picture here in verse 17 of how we can fail to actually love a brother or sister in need. Step one, we have the world's goods. Now, not every believer has extra things to give others, but the majority of us do. This isn't implying that we're rich, but simply that we have enough to share with others. So step one, we have the world's goods. Step two, we see a fellow believer in need. God allows us or makes us aware of a brother or sister who has a particular need that we have the ability to help with. We see the need and we're aware of it, but then step three, we fail to help them. Literally, we're closing off that place of compassion in our hearts. John's summary question at the end of verse 17 then is, how does the love of God abide in that person? That, my friends, is a soul-searching question. Now, please notice something with me here. In verses 16 to 17, John switches from plural to singular. In verse 16, John writes that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, plural. But then notice in verse 17, he describes seeing a brother in need, singular, and then failing to help them. Why does John do that? Listen, please. Because loving everybody in general can become an excuse for helping no one in particular. Can I repeat that, please? Loving everyone in general can become an excuse for helping no one in particular. In Luke 10, Jesus gives us the illustration of this truth, and it's a familiar story, the Good Samaritan. An unsaved lawyer or religious expert in the law comes and asks Jesus how he could inherit eternal life. Jesus challenges him to love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then with that, to love his neighbor as himself. That self-righteous and pompous lawyer then asks Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus proceeded to tell him the story about a man who had been beaten, robbed, and left for dead. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't state whether that victim was a Jew or a Gentile. He was simply a fellow human being in need of help. 
Then Jesus describes two different religious men coming one after the other, a priest and a Levite. Both men come upon the scene of the crime and see the victim lying on the road. And in both cases, both men continue walking away without helping that poor person. As George Bernard Shaw said, the worst sin toward our fellow man is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. Then a Samaritan comes by and immediately renders aid. He bandages the wounds and transports the victim to a local inn. The Samaritan also pays the innkeeper so the man can remain there. That's what loving your neighbor looks like, and that's a picture of what Jesus has done for us on a grander scale. But please follow me on this. The story of the Good Samaritan isn't just a heartwarming story about helping hurting people. Remember, Jesus was interacting with an unsaved and self-righteous lawyer who had started that conversation by asking Jesus how to receive eternal life, how to inherit it. Jesus then shared that particular story and got the lawyer to admit that the person who truly acted in love towards his neighbor was the Samaritan. And after Jesus got him to admit that, he then told him to go and do likewise. Do what? Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself perfectly and unconditionally. If you can love God and love others perfectly and unconditionally without fail, then you'll inherit eternal life. But obviously, the point is that no one can do that. You can't inherit eternal life. You must receive it by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. John now comes at that same truth from the other direction and says, if we profess to being Christians, but we don't love people in action and in truth, then how can we say that God's love abides in us? But with that, John doesn't want us as genuine believers to doubt our salvation either. He's simply encouraging us to live out our faith to the fullest. In love, John writes, My little children, let us not just love in word or tongue, but in action and in truth. In verse 19, when we tangibly help others, it demonstrates that we are who we say we are, Christians. It blesses our own hearts with assurance that our faith is real. Now, helping others doesn't always have to be with money or material things. It could be bringing a meal to someone during bereavement or sickness. It could be helping out a widow in need by maybe mowing her grass or doing some repairs around the house. It could be providing a few hours of childcare so that a tired mom could have some time to herself or just get out of the house for a couple of hours. And it can simply be listening to someone who's hurting and needs to talk. We may not be qualified counselors, but we are qualified listeners. And please, listening means listening, not talking over that person and trying to explain everything. And so we wrap up this passage in verses 22 to 24, where John writes, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Finally then, John's third contrast is a heart of love. We move from a heart of hatred to a heart of indifference to then a heart of love. As the 20th century arrived, the Salvation Army was having a large conference and their founder, General William Booth, was scheduled to come and speak. 
But as the conference approached, Booth was suddenly unable to attend. So a message was sent to him asking him to please send a timely word of exhortation to the convention. Booth replied with a single word, others. John not only exhorts us to love others, but he also wants us to appreciate the many blessings that come with a Christian heart of love. He lists three blessings here in these verses, and I invite you to make a note of them, beginning with assurance of salvation back in verse 19. We read many verses and hear many sermons that warn us not to treat sin lightly, and that's important. But as a balance to that, God doesn't want us to be harder on ourselves than he is. Perhaps as we've talked about love and action, your heart has felt convicted. In verse 20, when this happens and our heart convicts us or even condemns us, God is greater than our heart. In other words, in the lives of God's children, God's grace and forgiveness is greater than the guilt and accusations in our hearts. Praise the Lord for that. The second blessing then is answered prayer in verse 22. Love for the brethren draws us closer to God and helps produce boldness in our prayers to God. Now, most of you are mature enough to know that receiving whatever we ask for doesn't mean things like praying to win the lottery. The promise here is that as we pray to God, he will hear us and give us what we ask for as we live and pray to please him. God's generous invitation has spiritual conditions like We'll look at the last part of verse 22, that we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing to him. And so as we obey God's word and live righteous lives, we won't be sending up prayer requests to win the lottery. Our requests will reflect God's love and God's heart. And then the third blessing is abiding faith in verse 24. As we keep his commandments like loving one another, we abide in him and he abides in us. We have fellowship with God, and he has fellowship with us. This takes place because of the Holy Spirit living in us, as the end of verse 24 points out. And so, as we walk in love and obey God's word, we remain in close communion with God. In this passage, John has reminded us that talk is cheap and genuine love is invaluable. And so, let us love God supremely and let us love one another genuinely. And until our next podcast, then, may the Lord bless you.